Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of Computer Crime Chronicles. I'm Mark Johnson, and my co-host is Jason G. Weiss. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm great, Mark. How are you? I'm real good. Jason G. Weiss? Jason G. I know. People always wonder, why do I use my middle initial all the time? The problem is I'm an attorney, so by definition, I'm probably a little overly arrogant. But uh, the main reason I do it is, believe it or not, there is another Jason Weiss who works in the same county that I do. That's also an attorney at another large law firm. And I decided long ago I wasn't going to let him steal all my credit for this stuff. So I went back to my Yobin, which for my 22 years in law enforcement is your official bureau name. So I just keep, I've used the G for so long. I'm just used to it now. So I always go by Jason G. Weiss. I just didn't want the audience to think you were really pretentious. A little bit. (laughs) Well, both Jason and I have spent the better part of our careers in law enforcement performing computer forensic analysis. Now, basically, that means we've been digging into computers and cell phones looking for evidence of crimes. Those crimes range from simple theft to homicides and everything in between. In fact, the main goal of this podcast is to share some of the great work law enforcement and private sector examiners have been doing in these cases. Amen, Mark. In this episode, Jason and I will give you our backgrounds, where we came from, and we'll share a couple of stories as well. Jason, why don't you get things cracking here and tell us a little bit about your background and where you came from. All right. My name is Jason G. Weiss. I like walks on the beach and, you know, snowy (laughs) evenings. But uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, I spent my first six years as a a trial attorney in beautiful Stockton, California, home of the Mud Hens. Did all kinds of weird stuff. Went into the FBI after about six years. Spent 22 years in the FBI. My first year in the FBI, I worked bank robberies, applicants, general violent crime type matters. Our division decided to form a computer crime squad. And because I could spell the word DOS and was reasonably DOS literate at the time, I was immediately transferred to the computer crime squad, where I then spent the next 21 years of my career in the FBI, basically working solely technology-related matters for the FBI. I became a senior. I, I got into the cyber squad in 1998. I then got moved over to computer forensics, where I uh, became eventually, after a few years of working cases, became a senior computer forensic examiner. I was the first special agent senior computer forensic examiner in the history of the FBI, actually. Wow. And then I, became, I got promoted shortly after that to become the supervisor of the, of the FBI's forensic program called the Computer Analysis Response Team. I did that for about two or three years until our division was awarded what's called a regional computer forensics laboratory, which was one of 15 forensic laboratories slash task forces the FBI set up and funded, a federal, state, and local computer forensic examiners. Because I was fairly important in terms of getting that awarded to LA and and had some experience in in that world, I was appointed the first laboratory director of what's called the Orange County Regional Computer Forensic Laboratory, where I spent seven years building and managing the OCRCFL, as we called it. Then after that, I got termed out. The FBI has a seven-year up-or-out policy. So after my seven years of being a supervisor was over, and I declined their gracious invitation to move back to the East Coast, I got sent back to being a street agent where I helped set up a cyber task force called the Neighborhood Watch for a year. And then I went back to the RCFL as an examiner where I spent the last few years of my career as a senior computer forensic examiner. We're quite a couple hundred cases probably, mostly mobile forensic cases and such. Mm-hmm. And I retired from the Bureau in July of 2019, where I became a cybersecurity and forensics attorney for the law firm of Fagree, Drinker, Biddle, and Reese, where I still work today. I actually, if I can give one shameless plug, and I won't do it again, uh, I am actually the founder and host of our firm's podcast called Fagree, Drinker on Law and Technology. For those that are interested, you can subscribe to any uh, platform that does podcasts. 
bakery drinker on law technology. And here we sit today. This is where I am today. That's a heck of a resume, Jason. In fact, you and I met while you were working for the Bureau, right? True. Yes. Many times. We've, we've been friends a long time. That's right. Well, again, my name's Mark Johnson. I started my career as a uh, police officer in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I, I took sergeant's test. I made sergeant. And on the side, I actually built computers, just kind of tinkering around, helping people out. You can build them pretty easy from scratch back in the day. I'd help people get connected to the internet. One day, I happened to be in crime scene investigations at the time. We had a multiple, I think it was a five-person homicide. And homicide took the computer out of the house. I didn't know this at the time until much later. But later on, about two weeks later, I contacted the sergeant in the homicide. And we began talking about this case and specifically this computer. He says, yeah, have you heard of this thing called computer forensics? And I had not. And I had, like I said, been in law enforcement and had been working with computers for a long time. I had not. He said, yeah, they have this thing that's real big on the East and West Coast where they actually have law enforcement look at computers. And he said, and to this day, this will be the biggest phrase that changed my life. He says, do you know when you delete something off a computer, it doesn't really go away? I had no idea. This was like my, oh my gosh, moment. He said, yeah, just basically when that happens, Peter just gets rid of the card catalog. The data stays exactly where it was. You just can't find it by looking at a directory or a card catalog where that data was. I found this so fascinating. I started looking into the, how I could maybe get involved in this. I found a free course, the National White Collar Crime Center, a government course out in West Virginia. And it was free for law enforcement. It's a week-long class and an introduction to computer forensics. I really wanted to go to a bad, so I went to my commander at the time and said, hey, listen, I think we can have one of these units here, put it directly in the crime, under the crime scene, and I think it will make a, a real big impact because I know that Customs, from what my research showed me, is really busy and they can't get to all the cases they do. And he was not a computer guy. And I remember him distinctly saying, you know, we don't have one of those units, so you don't need to go. And I said, hey, it's, it's, it's free. It's not going to cost us anything. He said, nope, just go back to work. Well, I was too jazzed to go back to work, Jason. There's no way I could have gone back to work. So I basically called them, and they allowed me to come to the class, which I got free, but I had to pay for my own travel and my own hotel, which I considered a bargain because that, that course changed my – that course absolutely changed my life. I've the been same, to it. It's a great course. Very good course. In fact, still still available today. Fantastic people out there. So – Moving forward, I had a couple more classes I wanted to go to in the next three months, all of which I brought to my commanders and all of which he said no on every single time would not let me go. And each time I went anyway and paid my own way. So literally after about four months, I knew how to do computer forensics. I even built my own computer. I actually bought some software to do computer forensics. And I started telling people around the department, hey, I can do this if you, you, know, if you need it to be done. I can, I can do it now. I have the, I have the skills. And it's, it's kind of, I say that now, but you, if you remember your first time you ever did computer forensics, oh my gosh, what I, what I, if I knew the then what I know now, you know, what a, what a, not a good statement that was at the time. I mean, you sure, you know, a little bit, but you learn a lot more as you go through life, obviously. Well, long story short, uh, the case came around that uh, my old TAC partner, my old SWAT team partner, who is now Sergeant and Vice, they handled all the child porn cases, had a big child porn case. Customs usually work those cases, but they were six months backlog. He asked me if I wouldn't mind work it. I said, sure, let's let me go check with my major. I went to my major's office, sat down and said, hey, Vice has this case with child porn. They'd like me to work it. And that's all I got out of my mouth. And then I got ripped. And it went on for about five minutes. I stood up and I had about half of what I used to have to sit on. And I was told to go back and do my job or I'll be kicked out of crime scene. So that was my introduction into computer forensics and not being able to say it. 
Shortly thereafter, a major in the fraud department heard about my, my training, and he really wanted to start a computer crime section underneath his auspice. Important. So he, he gave me that uh, opportunity, and I worked, I think I worked 42 cases in the first 11 months. And uh, I mean, my, first, my first case was a homicide case, and we actually found evidence that, that, that caught the person. So I think they found that it would be worthwhile to have that. I got to, I just, I got to jump in. Your story's so great because we should have a whole episode on how you became a computer forensic examiner <laughs> because literally, seriously, when I, when I got assigned to the cyber squad, my desk, I don't know if you remember Lauren Mercer. He used, he oh, was sure. the original, yeah, yeah, Lauren yeah. was the original card examiner in San Diego, the forensics guy. I sat next to him and he was a talkaholic. He's like, you know, we got along well. So he's like, come on, man, I got to do this computer stuff. Come with me. You can help me. He was just so excited to be able to boss around an FBI agent because he wasn't an agent. He was the support employee. And I, yeah, you know, he, he was a good examiner. He was a good examiner. And he taught me a lot of stuff as long as I would carry the bags. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> as long as I could carry the bags. And then I became a, I got into the forensics program because the day after our squad started, our supervisor had a meeting and said, I need one person from the squad to go over and do this forensics thing. I don't even know what it is. And Lawrence literally just elbowing me in the side saying, come on, sign up, volunteer, volunteer. And so I didn't even know what it was. So I just raised my hand and said, I'll do it. Because I like Lauren. He was a nice enough guy. And that, I became the first CART FBI on-the-job trainee in the, in the history of the Bureau. Because we didn't have them at that time. And my SAC called down, our special agent in charge, called down to headquarters and said, we want to train this guy. And uh, CART headquarters, FBI headquarters said no. Because we don't train them until they get entered into the program. So my SAC was buddy with Louis Free, who was the FBI director at the time they were really really good friends like you know speed dial kind of thing so he called down to louis and said i I really want to get my guy trained up before he goes to the certification program because we were dying in san diego at the time we were so lauren was just getting crushed i mean right and and then so one day i get a call from card headquarters saying congratulations you're in the program you know what i'm saying even though we have because obviously he got he got a what for and we were i just forget this is how it used to be mark i don't know if you remember these days we were so busy. I were, at one point, I worked 19 days in a row, just, just trying to catch up on all the imaging, weekends, oh, sure. everything. And I finally told my supervisor, I said, I don't mean to complain, but I need to go home at some point and actually, you know, like go to Costco or go to the grocery store or just do something because my weekends have been totally screwed. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, was, it was no different in the Midwest. I, I actually got to join the RCFL as well. I left the police department for a year and taught forensics for guidance software, which is the NK software. And then really missed doing forensics, came back here in the United States Attorney's Office, hired me. And the R- our RCFL, the Heart of America RCFL, had just started or was just started in, in May of right. that year. And, I, you know, for me, it, it was, I love that job so much. That short week was 60 hours a week. Just because, oh, yeah. And I, no. I didn't get overtime. So it was, well, uh, I just I'll loved the great, work. Yeah, what happened, it was so, we were so backed up just like you were that I told my supervisor, if, if I take the work home with me, and do it over the weekends at home, can I, can I just go home? And he's like, sure. Can you imagine doing that today? They would have a conniption fit. Oh, no, but that back, would never happen today. But, but back then, I literally took a computer home, and I imaged all weekend, and I had a little closet that I just kept the evidence in that my wife promised not to go in, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. that, that was the Wild West of computer forensics back in the late 90s when we started this thing. It was, it was nutty. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very interesting. In fact, I, I'm sure there's a lot of examiners out there uh, listening to this or hopefully listening to this that can relate exactly to what we're talking about. Maybe yeah. we'll get the chance to talk to them as well. 
So let's move into uh, today's topics. And like I said, I thought I'd keep things simple today. We'd avoid the news saying we wouldn't bring anybody in from the outside. I thought maybe just the two of us could share a story from each one of us to maybe wet the whistle of the audience for the upcoming episodes after this. Do you have a, a good story you can tell? I don't know. It's a, it's a good story. It was a very interesting. It was one of my favorite cases. It was one of the first cases I worked in my career. So that it kind of has a special place for me. But you and I both came from the regional computer forensics lab system which means we kind of were a task force. And even though I was an FBI agent at the time and for many years, I worked the case for San Diego PD. We had a homicide near Balboa Park, which is a big park down in San Diego. And apparently there was a person who had picked up somebody in the park in order to have a romantic escapade with, brought him back to his house. The guy lived there with him for probably a day or two. And then one day, the, uh, the victim who had picked up this guy originally was, was eventually murdered by the person he had picked up. And of course, when the police finally got involved, we didn't know who had done it or who the, who the bad guy was. So there was a computer. So they came to the lab. The case was assigned to me just randomly. And they said, hey, we really want to know if we could figure out who murdered this poor guy. You know, because he got a, it was pretty gruesome. I mean, it was bludgeon to death, blood everywhere. It, it was pretty bad. And the only thing they knew at the time was that the computer was on. And that this guy was a big user of America Online, the old subscription service that everybody used back in the 90s and early 2000s. Right. So the first thing I did to kind of try and get a head start on what was going on was trying to figure out how the computer was being used. So as you know, in computer forensics, you can go through and look at this, what's called media access controls, which are file creation dates, modification dates, last access dates. I noticed the computer had been used. We had got a time of death from the coroner and the coroner gave us a, what he thought was a reasonable time of death. And we noticed the computer had been used a few hours after time of death. So we came to the conclusion that somebody had been in the house using the computer after the person had been murdered, which by probably definition was the murderer. The problem was when we looked at the computer and we tried to figure out who was using the AOL account, because that had been one of the last programs used by looking at the last access dates, we couldn't really tell because there was no screen name other than the victim screen names. We were able to get the victim screen names and we said, well, that's strange because either somebody was using the victim's account or there was a deleted screen name. As you know, back in AOL days, you could delete a screen name once you were done with it or if you wanted to get rid of it. So one of the things we were trying to figure out before we jumped to conclusion was, was there any deleted screen names? That turned out to be a way harder thing to figure out. So what we did is we had to jump through a lot of hoops to get through AOL and get the legal authority. We talked to all the lawyers and said, hey, we're trying to talk to an engineer because we want to know if there's any potentially deleted screen names here that could belong to the killer. Because we knew the killer was on there. We didn't think the killer would have been using victim screen names because they had only known each other for a day or two based on the investigation so far. Most people don't give up their screen names that quickly. You know what I'm saying? And so after quite a few days of going back and forth between uh, the district attorney's office and ALL, and, and to ALL's credit, they were very cooperative. They just wanted everything, every I dotted, every T crossed. They, they, we were able to get the legal authority done, and then they said, okay, we'll get you to an engineer who could try and answer some of my questions. The problem with AOL, like most major services, is that they don't give one person the keys to the kingdom. The hard part was finding the right engineer, because engineers only work on their particular aspect of the case. And they don't know how AOL works as a whole, they don't want one guy to understand everything. Apple's the same way, they're all the same way. People work on their specific part of the project, and somebody else combines it, but you can't, you don't know what you don't know. So therefore you can't leave the company, steal it and give it to somebody else. After probably a week of going through various engineers, I got the engineer who was able to help me figure out the lead of screen names. 
So there's a file on AOL, at least at that time, that stores deleted screen names in it. And that's done because if somebody accidentally deletes a screen name, you could call AOL customer support and they'll help you un undelete the name. But you wouldn't be able to find this file or recover this file without knowing how, how it works from a forensic standpoint. It's, it's not, they don't want people deleting, undeleting screen names with, by accident. You know what I'm saying? Because those names were deleted for a reason. So it was kind of a process. You know, getting there was, I used to always like to laugh that when people ask me how I got there is that I said, I like to use my FBI voice because you had to be firm, but fair, you know, and tell these people, look, you're going to help us whether you want to or not. We can either do it friendly or we can do it by subpoena. It's your call. You're right. But we know that in all honesty, we'll probably never crack this homicide unless we know whether AOL is the root of the cause of what happened here. And I finally got to the right engineer. He was a super good guy. Probably after two days of going through files, we found the deleted file. And he explained to me after I signed a non-disclosure agreement, how to undelete the file so we could look at the deleted screen names, which after going through the steps with him, we were able to undelete screen names and we found a screen name that was not originally on there. And we were able to tell what the screen name had been deleted five hours after the alleged cause of death. Oh, okay. See, in the FBI, we call that a clue. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? we would too. Even yeah, in local law enforcement, we'd call that a clue. Right. That's crack law enforcement right there. And so now we have a screen name that was deleted five hours after what we believe is the cause of death. The screen name itself by itself means nothing. So then we were able to get some legal authority going on to detect the file, the search warrant. We were able to get a name of the subscriber who would use that screen name. And then what we had done is we, we, we found out that this was somebody who had lived in San Diego County, which is where I, I lived at the time. And... He would actually have been in jail on an unrelated charge at the time. So we then executed a search warrant at his house, grabbed his computer, found his AOL account, and found that identical screen name on his account. Now, once again, being a crack investigator, when you find one screen name on one computer and an identical screen name on the other computer, that's another clue. So that gave us another, enough to tie him to that computer. He, we interviewed him. He actually had no idea how he could explain that one away without lying through his teeth. It was, they weren't even really good lies. And basically, that was enough to get him prosecuted for homicide. And he eventually pled out to a second-degree murder. Well, he and, did plead. Uh, well, yeah, well, because we, we had him cold. I mean, they were, he had right. no way to explain why his screen name was on the victim's computer and had been deleted five hours after the victim had been killed. And this computer was in the victim's house. You know what I'm saying? So we knew we could place him in that house. You know what I'm saying? And that, that's really what the key was. And Do you remember I mean, what was, sentence he got, Jason? A life. He got life. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, okay. but he didn't get the death sentence. Because back then, they still had a death sentence. And, you know, he, he pled out. They, they let him plead out the second-degree murder. And he, he got life. With, I don't know if he got parole or not. I'm pretty sure he's probably still there as we speak, because this case is only 20-something years old. Mm -hmm. So he, he's probably still there. But that's a case. And really, it was, it was a fascinating case, because we were able to put timelines together, we were able to do so many forensic techniques trying to figure out how to crack this case. For me, it was a bit of a challenge because I was still relatively new to computer forensics. So I was kind of learning as I went. And, you know, I was because I was able to, you know, ask some folks that had been more experienced than me how they would handle it. You know, thank God Microsoft Excel existed so we could put together a timeline and a spreadsheet format that we could sort. Because I'm telling you, when you're going through that much data, being able to sort it, exclude it, you know, do all that stuff was huge. And it was, it was real, I hate to say it, it was forensics and police work side by side. And that was a case, in my opinion, that would have never been solved had it not been for computer forensics. 
Jason, was that deleted AOL? Did you guys recover that out of an allocated space or was it still in an allocated file? It was still in an allocated file, but like I said, it was not designed for easy recovery. Generally, the AOL people do it, but we couldn't give them those files because it was now part of the evidence. So he had to walk me through it, and that's where the challenge lied because not only did we have to have them tell us that technique, we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement so we would never disclose how we did it. Second question, was the data in binary form or was it plain text? Plain text. Plain text. Okay, so let me rephrase. It started out in binary. He explained to me how to put it into plain text. Oh, interesting. And that's, yeah. I think that's even a bigger part of the story. Not only did you deal with basically deleted data in a file, so that file has its own unallocated space. And right. folks, what I mean by unallocated space is when you delete a file, we've already said it doesn't go away. Unallocated space is basically what we classify as where that data is now existing. It's not, it's not allocated to a file. It's not present in a file. So Normal unallocated space is just places that are ready to have more data written to it. Uh, even though there may be data out there, you can write over right over the top of it, like you could with a v uh, VCR tape in the old days. So what mm. Jason's saying is he actually had unallocated space within a file. The data was still there, but the right. program wasn't recognizing it because it had actually been marked for deletion and, and in binary, which means it's not human readable until after going through a process, which Jason did with the engineer. Did I get that right? Yeah, because there was an AOL proprietary file. Gotcha. And so that's what made it super challenging is recovering it and putting it from a binary to a clear text. Once we did that, it was easy because then we had a clear text, basically text file of all screen names that had been on that computer. But that was where the engineer was a lifesaver. That's probably something I would not have cracked on my own without the engineer's assistant because he was able to walk me through the steps and provide me the information on how I can turn that proprietary file, how I could crack into it and extract the plain text. One more question, Jason, then I'll let you go on that story. This is a great example of going beyond the simple, I looked at some pictures and I looked at some stuff and there you go. And you spit right. it out oh, to a yeah. disc and someone else does it, which sometimes does happen in, in some jurisdictions. Yeah. So would you say at the, the, at the time this happened in your career, the time within your computer forensics career, this was the defining moment. So you incorporated that as you moved forward throughout your career as well. Use the same, you know, you realize that data was sometimes not as easy as just looking at a file. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. Cause in the FBI, we do, we, we do use a process where on a lot of cases, like, we just do what we call care, which is where we do data dumps and let the case agent look to the data because we have so many cases. And like you're working a gang case and they want to see if there's a gang member on, in the photos. He can do that faster and better than I can. But when it comes to really solving cases, that's where we were critical. Like I've worked many cases. That's just, just one story. I've got a ton, just like I'm sure you do, where we use computer forensics to solve crimes. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's really in some ways a lost art form because Computer forensics has evolved. The, the software has gotten so good. The software does a lot of it for you today. But back then, as you know, Mark, it was brain power over processing power because the software, the computer forensics software we had was, was good, but it wasn't great. It just wasn't, it was just so new. It just wasn't ready for what we asked it to do. There's been a huge evolution there, but this case was really made through just forensics, police work, and a little bit of luck. Awesome. That is a terrific story. Well, I'll share a quick one myself. I actually Good. did a homicide. was my first case, but I thought I'd start with something a little bit out of the ordinary. Uh, we had a case uh, while I was at the RCFL in a small town here. They were getting a lot of gift cards they'd get that were stolen. 
or they were bought with stolen credit cards. And it became such an epidemic that the, the federal government stepped in and we were able to identify a suspect who literally was on the plane to Jordan, the Jordan, when we pulled him off the plane before he left the country. The interesting part is when I started looking at his computer, it was absolutely filled with information. What this guy did, and it's really quite brilliant. I'm sure we, you know as well as I do, the hacking these days is it's just premier. The, the things these guys are doing with ransomware these days are unbelievable. Back in those days, though, it was a little more simpler. They weren't doing ransomware. They weren't stealing from a big company. It was all just kind of get out there and steal what you could if you could hack into a computer. Right. This guy was using a method called SQL injection. SQL actually stands for Structured Query Language, and it's used in managing databases, kind of like advanced spreadsheets uh, if you want to make things easy. When you log into a website, let's just say the website has a uh, back-end member list or something like that. That member list will sit usually in some type of an SQL database. And if a hacker can get access through your web server into that database and have administrative rights to it, he can basically just take everything that's in that database. Well, our particular guy was using SQL injection, which is, at the time it was, I think this was 2007. That was advanced at the time. No, actually it wasn't. SQL injection had been out for six, seven years. So as far as- True, but not a lot of people used it well. That's right. In fact, they had used it a lot and then completely forgotten about it because they had moved on to other methods. This guy was using SQL injection. What he did was, and I'm sure a lot of you have done this with your bank accounts if you're doing bank accounting online, you bring up the bank's website or you bring up any kind of website and it asks for your username and your password. Most time your username is going to be an email address. And then it asks for your password, you type it in, and you're in. You're either in your gym membership, you're at your favorite website where you trade baseball cards, or you're in your bank account. What this guy did is he knows if he would have tried to use SQL injection techniques against the bank, it wouldn't have worked because banks have very strong IT departments, very strong coding. They're blocking all that kind of stuff. There's no way he would have gotten in. So he went for low hanging fruit. He actually went to a very small restaurant. And I say a small restaurant, it's a chain. So it's throughout the United States, but it's not huge. And they happen to have a, a members list because people could actually get free coupons once a month through an email. They'd get an email from the restaurant saying, hey, here's $5 off the steak. So to sign up for their membership, you'd have to give your username and a password. Username was what? Your email address, of course. So these people would do that. Well, this guy so restaurants, rest- are storing, so restaurants are storing user data. Can you imagine today what a nightmare that would be to deal with? I, I guarantee it's still happening because it wasn't just a restaurant. I mean, there were, and I'll just jump ahead a second. This guy had six or seven different sites he had already hacked and had them listed on his computer. Nice. We were able to call each one of them and say, hey, you've been hacked. And two of them, they said, no, no way, no way. We would never get hacked. And I said, is your username this and is your password this? And there was... Uh, done silence <laughs> on the other side. So yeah. And some of these companies were very good about it because they didn't have full IT staffs. They didn't have full-time IT staffs. They just couldn't do it. So what this guy does is he uses a deal where the, the hack itself is because there's a flaw in the coding. And that flaw is instead of the password being the actual password, you could actually type an SQL query statement. So they'd start by typing in an apostrophe, which all that does is it closes the password field. And then he types in the word or, one equals one. So basically, if there's a password that's blank, or one equals one. Well, what's one equals one? That's a true statement. 
and far as the web server is concerned, the true statement's just as good as the password, and you're in. And he got complete administrative access to that member's database because he did that. So let's we have just to, we say- have to, We have to, hold on, we have to warn our, our listeners, do not try that at home. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's do not a, do only, that to other people. <laughs> there's only about a hundred, there's only about a hundred YouTube videos on this. So right. it would not so, be good for you to, and it is completely illegal. And if it actually, but as worked, an attorney, we've now warned them. We've now warned them. Mark. We're, we're safe <laughs> from liability. Do not try this at home. Do not that, do it. That's why I've got you on this podcast, Jason. There you you're go. the there legal you go. representation. <laughs> right. Don't but do, cr- he's right. don't commit don't do crime. This. Don't do this. This is a bad thing. But at right. the time, this is, I what he, this is what he did. And he got access. What's he going to do with a simple members list on this? Well, he's going to do what every enterprising hacker is going to do. He went, started going to bank sites and credit card sites and typing in the username and the password for each one of these people he got off that. And he, was getting, he was getting one hit out of 20. Now, you may not think that's a lot, but I think it's a lot. And you can't quote me on the exact number, but I think there was roughly a three quarters of a million dollars at stake here that was up for grabs. He didn't get it all. I think he got some, but he'd used stolen credit card information to buy airline tickets and then sell those international. He's selling them all over the world. He's buying these airline tickets with stolen credit cards, and then people would pay him to get discounted airline tickets. And then you he know, started we got to make sure. So, so just so the audience knows, I don't mean to interrupt, I apologize. This is called credential stuffing attacks. These still go on today. This is just a very prehistoric version of it, but... That's okay. So once he got all this information, started doing these things, he was doing pretty well. And from a computer forensic standpoint, he was sharing stuff. He had about five or six people in his group that did this. A lot of them would go out and purchase the gift cards in stores, or they'd go use the gift cards or the stolen credit cards in stores or online. So they were all working together to obtain all this information and data. A lot of that I found online in web pages. I'd find the web pages of a, like an Amazon.com where the, he had typed in the username and address and bought this particular product. What I thought was fascinating at the time was the co-conspirators were not sending anything over the internet to each other that we could track in email. So if you remember the old Yahoo email, Jason? Yeah. So what he'd do is they all had access to the same Yahoo account. Let's just say it's, um, you know, Smith123 at yahoo.com. They all had the credentials for that, their own that they set up. And what one of them would do if he wanted to send a whole bunch of stolen credit card information to another, he'd write a draft email, type it all in there, you know, obviously copy and paste it from where he stole it online in the draft. And then he'd call the other person on the phone and say, okay, go check the email. That person would then open the draft email and then read it or copy it down however he wanted to, to a word doc, whatever. But that never went through the system. So there was no way to trace it that way. They had to access that same account, which was kind of pretty cool at the time. What he didn't realize is all those draft emails are stored in web page format in an allocated space on your own system. So no, that's, yeah, that's it's so funny you bring that up because, you know, you, I'm sure, I don't know about you, but I worked heavily on the 9-11 case, and that's exactly what the hijackers did to communicate mm. in, in Hotmail. They all used the same Hotmail account. They put everything in the draft folder. I mean, just so you know, they were using Kinko's to do that. And at, oh. one, point, they, at one point, we had FBI agents out, and card examiners outside every Kinko's in America. We were ready to image every computer in every Kinko's in America based on that exact that is how we, we recovered it. Just because just you brought that story, it just made me think. And that's, that's a story for another day. But that's exactly what the 9-11 hijackers did to communicate. Exact same yeah. thing. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty good stuff. It works well. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, that's funny. You know, we have laws. We protect the laws. We do what we can. The criminals are constantly trying to circumvent those laws, and there's always a yeah. new way to do it. And computer hacking is just another another offense like anything else. The one other thing I'll leave you with this case is our bad guy in a federal government. I think the average national average for that crime is two to four years. Our guy got ten. So, wow. And he pled. He pled straight up without a without a plea deal, and the and the judge hammered him with ten years. So well, here's a question I'm wondering about from your story. Did you find this evidence? And I don't know if the audience knows the difference between allocated and unallocated space, but there's a huge difference in terms of the complexity of the exam, and the complexity of recovering the data. Do you remember? Did you find that stuff? Like you asked me, was it was it in the active file system, or did you have to drag it out of the unallocated space? I, I had a, a lot of both, actually. I had a tremendous amount of credit card information I found in unallocated. Just 15 pages of of going over with the U.S. Attorney's Office. 15 pages of credit card data, full pages from you know 80 characters wide, every space taken with data. 15 pages of it was unallocated space. Mm. So if I hadn't been looking for a particular name or a credit card, I don't remember which one it was at the time, I might not have hit on that because it's not just readily available. I can't just open a file and say, oh, there it is. But from forensics, what we get to do is we get to actually look at the actual physical disk. We see everything, the, the hidden stuff, the page file, which is temporary space that is used by the system when it goes low in memory, the unallocated space, the Slack space, end of a file. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, later in the show sometime. Uh, so yeah, that, I, and that's what really hooked me in, the, in this deal was finding things that you know, are not just in active files that are what we call low-hanging fruit. I mean, I'm so, low-hanging fruit's fine. I'll take whatever I can get. But when you can dive a little deeper and find even more, uh, it, it's kind of like the sentencing guidelines for um, some of the cases we work child pornography is a big case, obviously. I don't know about you in California. When we first came in the RCFL, I think our child porn cases were roughly <laughs> Like 49, 50% of all of our cases were nothing but child porn. We were 50%. Cases. Yeah. But yeah. We, have a, we have a jurisdiction of 23 million people, and half of our cases were child porn. Yeah. Yeah. It, Same it, with people us. have no idea how deep that problem goes. I just don't think people even understand how deep the child pornography problem is, even to this yeah. day. And the problem is, as you know, and this is once again another topic for another podcast, is that most of the world doesn't care that oh, do you think they don't care jason no i don't i don't think they care i can tell About you I've, child worked, porn? I've worked hundreds of child porn cases the russian asian countries trying to get any kind of legal authority taken those sites most of the really heavy child porn cases are not american based because in america we can take them down so they take them to europe they take them to asia they take them to russia and how much help do you think we get from them uh, I, I don't know i never talked to them zero Zero. Yeah, no, I'm telling you, that was the biggest problem with child porn is we find them on the bulletin boards, on the websites, and, and trying to get them down was, was the challenge because nobody hosts them in America because it's illegal and we'll arrest them. Right. I think a lot of countries care. I, I can guarantee that I'm sure we'll have some guests on this show that can tell us some really uh, staggering uh, cases involving child pornography and the, sure. uh, and the kidnapping of children for the sex crime trade and stuff. It's a very sad deal, but um, there's some tremendous work being done by law enforcement in fighting that kind tremendous of stuff. Work. And, and, and I'm, I'm Neck, proud yeah, what, to be part of that. What they too. do? I'm sorry? Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. NECMEC is another group. That oh, yeah, NECMEC, yeah, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Yeah, yeah, great work. But, well, that's yeah. fantastic. Jason, great. any final statements for today? Anything you want to share before we log off? No, I, th I think this was a great inaugural episode of the podcast. I really enjoyed it, and I was in it. So I hope the audience enjoyed <laughs> it. And uh, 
you know, I look forward to we doing this again real soon and hopefully people like it. And obviously I'd love to hear any feedback on what people like or don't like or whatever we can do to make it better. That sounds great. Well, I appreciate it, my friend. We'll see you next time. And so folks, thanks for listening in. In our next podcast, Jason and I will be talking with Becky Passmore. Becky was an FBI computer forensic examiner for 17 years and now works in the private sector. Becky has led a variety of complex digital investigations, which included technical analysis for national security, insider threats, internet fraud, child exploitation, terrorism, and public corruption. She'll also share a few interesting stories with us as well. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it too.